You guys can have a seat. Thank you, Isaac. Hey, well, good morning once again, Providence. We are, uh, man, it's good to be here. I am excited uh, to be here. Um, I don't know, uh, hopefully my sermon's going to be good too, but it's just fun to be together in the same room. And I, I have this sense of, of optimism that God is just kind of doing something in the church, kind of like Andrew talked about earlier, about um, talking about just wrestling through some of this stuff. And I think through some of this wrestle, the Spirit is actually working to to do something new and fresh. Last week, uh, I remember when I was driving here, uh, I had this like this optimism or this excitement as I was coming to church. And very honestly, a lot of times when I'm driving to church in the morning, um, it is not optimism. It's more so like uh, worry and like, I'm like, oh no, what if I forget what I'm going to say for my sermon? What if I botch the announcements? Is our tech stuff going to fall apart and ruin? Like, are our volunteers going to get sick? Are we going to have everyone we need this morning? And so I will invent new ways to worry as I'm driving to the church on Sunday morning. Uh, but last week was, was a little bit different. I had this excitement. And then when we gathered, before this 9 a.m. service, we gathered with our tech team and our worship team and some staff people. Andrew had just shared that as he was uh, taking some time uh, in the morning with God before he got here, that God led him to Psalm 1, uh, it was 122.1, which says, uh, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And in that time, he felt God compelling him just to say, hey, we should be glad when we come here. Like, this is pretty, uh, a pretty crazy thing that we get to come and worship God. And we should just have a gladness about that. And he heard that from God and, and to our team, he just challenged us. He said, hey, hey let's, let's try to be glad today as we're here. And I'm like, that's crazy because I've already felt this sense of gladness. And so we're like, hey, let's pray that everyone feels this. And so we prayed uh, last Sunday. And I don't know if you felt anything different, but, but I noticed last Sunday as we were here, like, it seemed to be different. Like there was this like energy and this excitement and this kind of lightness that was in the room. And I was like, man, that is an incredible thing that, that, that God is working in. And just through that very simple fact, God just reminded me of a couple things. One is that, that God still speaks to us, right? It, it also reminded me that, that God actually answers prayers. Like we prayed something and a couple minutes later, God actually answered that prayer. And the third thing that it reminded me is that is that our little church family here and us as individuals, like God is actually trying to do something in us. Like he's trying to, to, to move us forward. He's trying to, to work his gospel plan through us. And I would just, I don't know what it is. I'm not trying to be weird, but I have this sense that God is trying to do something new and fresh in our church. And, and, and that is, uh, that's kind of an aside to this sermon, this text, but it kind of fits in because um, what we're talking about this morning is the church once again. So this is the third week in a row that we are talking about um, how God works in and through the church. Now, you remember two weeks ago, I got up here and I talked about um, how a lot of times we see the church as this kind of oft but, but small, kind of uh, maybe uh, irrelevant thing in our culture, but, but Ephesians 2 tells us something different. It tells us that, that, that the church is incredibly powerful and it's incredibly relevant and that God has handpicked and handcrafted this thing called the church so that uh, we could live together in community, so we could be his people, so he could dwell in us. It is completely powerful and unique and diverse. Last week, Andrew uh, preached from Ephesians 3 and, and answered the question, what in the world is God doing? Like, 
what is God doing in this world? And and he showed us from Ephesians 3 that God's plan in the world is, is to take from a bunch of random people, he's trying to make one new people, and that is the church. I tried to remember the phrase that he used last week, and I can't quite remember it. It was a little confusing. But you, if you were here, you remember. He's trying to take all these people and unite them together in the church to build this church for himself. And this week, we're going to see that God's church, us, we have a role in this plan. God has a plan, and he's rolling forward this gospel timeline or this gospel storyline, and we have a part to play. We have a place in this gospel storyline. That's what we're going to see in this, and I'm going to summarize it today like this. This is the the big idea for today, is that God's plan goes forward when his people proclaim. God's plan and his power go forward when his people proclaim. And today, this passage is going to give us this insight into how God works in this generous way. Like he works with us in this overly generous way to to include us in his game plan, so to speak. So last weekend, I was... um, I, on Saturday, I was putting together a, a bunk bed uh, for my kids. It was a bunk bed from Ikea. And so I got all my tools ready. I got my swear jar ready. If you've ever put anything from Ikea together, you know it's going to be pretty bad if you put it together. I didn't really have a swear jar. But um, so I was putting this thing together, and all my kids were kind of around me. And Nash, who's my oldest son, he's five years old, um, he, said, he, said, uh, he said, Dad, I love helping you. And I keep working on it and keep working on it. He said, Dad, I really love helping you. A couple minutes later, I'm like, wait. I'm not even letting him help me right now. And so I'm like, I should at least let him help me, like, hand me the screws or something. So I said, hey, there's the screws. Why don't you hand them to me when I need a new one? And so um, he started doing that. And shortly uh, after that, a few minutes later, I'm like, wait, like putting things together with tools is one of his favorite things to do in the world. The least I could do is, like, let him help me screw these screws in. And so I said, hey, hey, buddy, I'll, I'll start this, and then you kind of do a couple turns, then I'll finish it off. So I let him uh, help me out a little bit more. And then after a couple more minutes passed on, I thought, you know what? If I really love this kid, even though it's going to take five times longer, I should let him actually just do it himself. And so I, I handed this to him. I thought, if he's going to learn if we're going to have, like, real enjoyment doing this, I should actually empower him to do this. And so he, he starts taking the screws, and actually, it was incredible. This kid did an amazing job of screwing in this, uh, the, the bottom part of this bunk bed. I don't know what it's called, but he, he put in, like, 10 screws all by himself, and it was, it was just fun. He loved it. And so here's the deal. The moral of the story is not that I'm a mediocre parent, although that may be evident in the story. But the moral of the story is, is I don't want to get too cheesy here, but this is kind of how God has treated us. When it comes to God's plan, he has handed us the screws and the screwdriver, and he said, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to see this go forward. By the way, if you haven't noticed, God's saying, I'm much more capable. I could do this on my own. I have the power and the ability to do this, but, but he's saying, I want you to be my plan. I'm turning this over to you. I want you to take my plan forward. I want you to put my power on display. And that's what we're going to see in Ephesians 3, that God's plan goes forward when his people proclaim. And we're going to see how this occurs uh, in two ways. One is individually, and one is corporately, like together as the church. And so we want to look first at how individually people can proclaim to help his plan go forward. And we're going to look at the example of Paul right here. So we're going to look at Ephesians 3, starting in verse 7. We're going to put this up on the screen. It says, we're going to talk about 
the individual call to proclaim. So it says this. It says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, I don't know who originally said this quote, so if you know, uh, come up and tell me so I don't get in trouble for plagiarism or whatever. But I heard this quote from when I did an internship about 10 years ago from, uh, with, with Gavin Johnson, who's now the pastor of City Light Omaha. And um, he always repeated this phrase that said, the gospel comes to you on its way to someone else. Have you heard that before? The gospel comes to you on its way to someone else. And Paul is the ultimate example of this. Think about him. He was a persecutor of Christians, and then Jesus knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and and he saved him. He opened his eyes to this gospel. He changed his heart. He forgave all his horrific sins, and he completely changed him. He was saved, and Paul says, because of this good news that has come to me, everything has changed, and now I am a minister of the gospel. We've heard Paul call himself a lot of things, an apostle, a prisoner, and now he's calling himself a minister. This minister word, uh, very simple. I think Isaac may have read it in the NIV earlier. It, it means servant, and it's specifically a lot of times in terms of a servant to the king. In other words, if you consider yourself a minister, your whole goal is to serve this king, and you could imagine that Paul is thinking that he is a servant of King Jesus. Everything in his life orients around that. And in this grand gospel storyline, the gospel came to Paul on the way to serve other people, on the way to someone else to serve them. And specifically in Paul's case, it came to Paul on the way to all of these Gentiles, to preach to the Gentiles this gospel, these riches of Christ that it talks about in verse 8. He got to be the first one in God's grand plan, in his gospel story, on his timeline going forward, he got to be the first one to preach this mystery, this gospel to the Gentiles. It was a, a gift of God's grace, he says, to have this role. Paul feels privileged to have this role. Now, many times when we think about using a, a talent of ours that's, that we consider a gift, maybe it's singing, maybe it's teaching, maybe it's the gift of administration or hospitality or a gift of leadership or a gift of service. When we think of those things as our gifts, a lot of times we think of them in a way that it is our gift to God to give these things. Hey, God has given me the ability to sing, so I'm going to surrender that to him and lead people with it. God has given me the ability to teach, and so I want to, to surrender that ability and do whatever he wants to, or this ability to serve, do whatever he wants to. This is going to be my gift to God, but Paul is saying the exact opposite. He's saying that this task to preach is a gift to me. This task to evangelize the Gentiles is a gift that God has given me. It is a privilege to be the first one, the primary voice to give this good news to the Gentiles. And if you are in here this morning, and if you have received a gift, and if you are in Christ, you have received many gifts If you have received that, it is exactly that, a gift. God has looked at you and he has said, hey, I want to gift something to you. I have thought of you with these gifts. I have wired you with these gifts. Now take these gifts and partner with me to proclaim. That's Paul's perspective here. Even though he's imprisoned when he wrote this, he considered this a gift. It was a gift to preach to the Gentiles, and we too have been gifted with wirings, with, with 
with talents, and we have been gifted with a calling to specific people to individually proclaim the gospel. Now, twice in these verses, <clears throat> once in seven and once in eight, um, Paul goes on and he said that all of this was possible, all this preaching to the Gentiles, this gospel, this mystery going forward, because he had received grace. Now, when you hear Paul say the word grace, you usually think of how grace is usually used. Even in Ephesians, it's like the grace to save him as a sinner. He's received this grace, like amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you, me, like Paul. You, that's what you usually think of when you think of God's undeserving grace. But right here, Paul is saying something slightly different. He's saying that God's gift has given him, gift of grace has given him this ability to preach. He's saying that, that this power to preach comes from grace. He doesn't deserve it, but God gives it generously. His power source going forward in ministry and seeing any hearts change is actually through grace. The only way that his proclaiming did any good is it was all because of God's grace to see it move forward, to empower it. Now, Paul has something vital for us to remember through this idea he has something vital for us to remember as we think about using our gifts, vital for us to remember as we think about proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because I think more often than not, I think that we feel powerless. Can we all admit, just like Paul actually admits in the next verse, in verse 9, that, that we've felt like the least. We've we felt like, man, I can't share the gospel with this person. They're way smarter than me, and they're going to have all sorts of questions that I can't answer. I can't disciple this person. I'm not mature enough to invest in someone else. Plus, they're older than me. You know, I can't get up and teach in front of people. I don't have anything that people want to hear. Like, no one's going to listen to me for that long. I don't want to get up and sing. I'm, I'm scared to do that. I, I don't want to lead a city group. I don't have the maturity for people to follow me. I don't know how to raise my kids to follow Jesus. I don't, I'm not talented enough to contribute. We feel this sense of powerless with, I can't, I won't. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. But Paul's statement here reminds us it's okay if you can't because the power to do anything impactful and fruit-bearing in God's kingdom is only through his grace. <clears throat> when you proclaim, God's power is at work. His grace is the thing that empowers. So last week, on Thursday night, um, I, had, uh, I, I spoke at, at PC3, which is our college ministry that meets right here on Thursday nights in this room. And uh, usually, when I get up to speak, I feel at least somewhat confident. Like some, some days when I get up to, to preach or to speak, I'm like, okay, this is, this is going to be a home run. I think this is going to be amazing. You guys are like, really? You do think that sometimes? No, for real, I'm, I have a lot of confidence sometimes. Other times I'm like, okay, this, this is at least going to be a single or a double. Like it's going to get on base. It's going to be okay. But... but this specific Thursday, it had been a long week, a grueling week, and even though I had studied and I'd spent time on it, it was coming up to Thursday night, and I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm going to say. And it was like four hours before, and I didn't have any words written on a paper, and I'm like, okay, like, I might just have to get up there on Thursday night at 8 o'clock, and I might just have to wing it. But God, if you could at least give me a general direction with which to wing it, that would kind of be helpful at this point. And, and so I was a, a, a little bit nervous. I was scared that I was going to be embarrassed. And uh, as I was walking up to the building here, 
on that Thursday night, people are like, oh yeah, you're here to preach, that's great, I can't wait to hear you speak. And I'm thinking, this is going to be horrible. And I'm like, Jesus, this might be terrible. What I have on paper here is, I don't feel good about it. This is not as good as I usually put something together. Like, I feel incredibly weak, incredibly vulnerable. Could you do something? Could you do anything with this? Please, God, it's, please save me from embarrassment in the process. Just please. And so uh, on Thursday night, I got up here, and I got done. And as I walked off, I had at least this sense. I'm like, okay, that wasn't an F, okay? It wasn't an F or a D minus, but it may have been a C. It may, maybe in some generous accounts, it may have been a B minus, but here's the, here's the thing that, that surprised me about it. Right as I got off stage, somebody came up to me and they're like, man, that one thing that you said about um, living under the rule and reign of Jesus as being the ultimate thing, he said, I just had a conversation about that just this afternoon in this one-on-one that I had, and we were wrestling and talking. I kind of just wrote the perfect thing at the perfect time, and I'm like, Praise Jesus, because I kind of just wrote it down at the last minute. And, and then after the night got over, there was a, a girl who came up, a college girl, and she said, you know, I was uh, kind of dialed into your talk most of the time, but I kind of dialed in right at the end when you use this example of, of us like kind of looking at other people's Instagram and envying this free-spirited lifestyle of travel. And she said, you wouldn't believe that I just had a conversation this afternoon with a friend of mine. And ever since then, my heart has been pulling toward that specific thing. She said, that was the perfect timing, the perfect thing that could have been said. I'm like, that's kind of great because that wasn't even in my notes. I just kind of said it in the moment. And, And I came back from that and I thought, man, I put together this mediocre script, but through God's grace, God wove these two people's stories and conversations in line with this script that I put together at the last minute with a couple phrases that I used in my sermon. And I thought, that's not my skill. That's God's power working through his grace. I thought, that's not a pastor thing. That's That's a Holy Spirit thing, a result of prayer in God's grace. That's God's power to minister when I feel weak. And as we try to apply this, I'm, I'm sure many of you, even if you serve here in the church, maybe you even have a leadership role in the church, you might think, okay, wait, I don't, I don't even, I don't know exactly what my gifts are. Like, I don't know how to proclaim this or how to do this with my words or my actions. Or, or you might just um, think, okay, this feels a little overwhelming or confusing to do this. I just want to say, could we all do something very simple when it comes to proclaiming as individuals? Could I... Could I challenge us to do something? I think God has renewed, kind of invigorated my heart for something really, really, really simple. And that is to simply just <clears throat> listen to God and pray through our day and actually do what he tells us to do. Like, before you, you can do it before, I said this two weeks ago, you do it before you get up, before you do anything else in the morning, you could do it on your commute to work, you could do it before you start your rhythm of homework, whatever the case is, but could you simply just set aside some time and, and listen to God through reading his word, spend some time then in silence, and then just pray to God through the conversations, the tasks, the things that you have going on through the day, and if you sense God is challenging you or telling you or asking you to do something, could you just very simply do it? I imagine 
And if we had Providence Church, a church of just 250 people, but if 250 people began to live this day-to-day walking with God, this lifestyle of proclaiming what he's told us to proclaim, even in some of the smallest ways, I think we would be shocked at what would happen. And I think back to even last week, what Andrew did. He woke up in the morning. He was disciplined enough to open his Bible, and God led him to this verse in Psalm 122. He read it, and he let God challenge him with it. And what did he do? He just said it. He got around a circle of people and said, hey, this is what God challenged me to do. We should pray about this. The simplest thing in the world, and you know what? God showed up, and he did something unique and fresh because of that. And I would say that last week, although Andrew preached a great sermon last week, I think maybe the greatest thing that he did was pause and listen to God and actually proclaim what he said in the morning. Providence, we have an individual calling that is empowered by God. So may the gospel, may it not stop at us, and may we continue to proclaim this as his power and plan move forward. So that's the idea of this individual calling. There is another calling that the church has collectively. So the gospel came to Paul. It went to this new and diverse church. And now there is a specific call they have um, in order that, that something specific happens. This, there's a so that phrase in here. And I want to tell you, uh, or uh, look at this, um, this so that phrase, what the church's role really is in proclaiming, okay? This collective proclaiming thing. It says in verse 10, it says, this all happened so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, did you hear what Paul claims? This is a little, kind of a crazy thought. He said that, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to, or what are we supposed to proclaim? The manifold wisdom. Who are we supposed to proclaim it to? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So two questions. First of all, what does manifold wisdom mean? And second of all, who are these rulers and authorities that he's actually talking about? So this word manifold literally means many colored. So it's this idea of different kinds of fabric, different colors of fabric being woven together. It it is the same word that is used of uh, Joseph's... uh, I want to say Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's uh, the coat of many colors that he has. Yes, I think they're both in the Bible, actually. One's in the NIV, one's... E- anyway, um, the, the uh, Joseph's coat of many colors, yes, that he uh, is like this many color, this beautiful woven fabric together. So this idea that God's wisdom is, is like this. It's multifaceted, it's multicolored, and that is the very thing that the church is supposed to proclaim this truth of God, this multifaceted, complex, and beautiful thing. But did you get who the church, who we are supposed to proclaim this to? It says, rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We are literally supposed to proclaim to the angels that are in heaven, these angels that have lived life with God, that live in the heavenly realm. And not only that, but also uh, the demons, the the spiritual forces of evil. We're supposed to be proclaiming this manifold, this multicolored wisdom to these heavenly authorities. In other words, as we gather here together on Sunday morning, we are not alone. 
we have an on-looking audience, and this audience of angels and demons, these heavenly beings are looking down, and they are getting a class in God's multicolored, multifaceted wisdom by watching the church together operate and be unified. Ephesians scholar Harold Hainer, I think I have this quote for the screens. Harold Hainer says this. He says, It is remarkable that God purposed to make known his manifold wisdom. Excuse me. It says, this actually is supposed to say mystery. It says, it is remarkable that God purposed to make known his manifold wisdom, the mystery, to heavenly rulers through the church rather than telling them directly. God could have done this himself, but he chooses to use us. He takes this, this band of rebels like us who were initially running toward God, who were initially self-seeking, and he changed our hearts. He saved us. He repurposed us. He, he unites us together, and now he's taken self-righteous people, and he's taking society's outcasts. He's taken Africans and Europeans and Asians and South Americans and this melting pot that is America, and he has brought all of this together to make this one new entity in Christ and that shows God's manifold wisdom. Think about, what, think about what angels and demons have seen. They've been around for a long time. Angels and demons have seen uh, God create. They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They've seen Jesus heal a blind man. They've even seen Jesus raise from the dead and ascend into heaven. They have seen all of that, but God's manifold wisdom is now being shown or taught to them by watching the church. Is it not crazy that we're not alone here this morning? But spiritual authorities are, are watching and learning something that they can't learn from anything else in our culture. I, uh, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. I don't know if any of you love watching the Olympics. Um, I tune in every couple of years when they come on, and I love how it brings the world together. It's kind of this lofty feel-good thing where all these in- inspiring stories. Um, and I, I don't know if you remember last year in South Korea, um, this inspirational story of bringing together um, players from North Korea and South Korea to play on the same women's hockey team. Do you remember that story? This incredible thing of, of, of coming together and uniting, and it's kind of at the heart of the Olympics. Four years before that in Sochi, the, the IOC uh, president, his name, is, um, his name is Thomas Bach, he said, the Olympic Games are always building bridges in order to bring people together. The Olympic Games are, are never about erecting walls to keep people apart. The Olympic Games is a sports festival that embraces human diversity in great unity. And you think, ah, yes, this is a beautiful picture, a comparison to what the church could be like. But here's the thing. Even as Bach was saying this quote in Sochi on that day, he was getting yelled at and jeered at from the crowd because of some human rights atrocities that were going on in Russia at the exact same time as this. And that Korean hockey team was inspiring, but now it's a year later and there's still a bitter and divisive spirit between these two countries. The Olympics can present an image of unity for 16 days, but it ultimately can't deliver. Only Jesus truly brings people together. Through the blood of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection, he has not only resurrected a band of rebels to himself so we can now be a part of his family, but he has taken all of us and brought us together into 
one family, natural enemies, diverse people that have now been brought together. This was the beginning, or this was God's plan from the beginning, that we live together for Christ and for one another. And that puts the angels and demons in awe of the wisdom of God. So providence, could we begin to look for opportunities to live more of life together in community as opposed to isolate from one another? Could we look for, oppor- look, look for the opportunity to come on Sunday morning and gather with gladness and try to get here as opposed to maybe looking for excuses to maybe not show up? Could we attempt to include people who are different than us and not just try to gather more people who look and talk just like us? Could we look at people who are different, that are in our community, and, and not hold them at, at an arm's length, but actually move toward them and, and love them and learn from them and integrate them into our actual lifestyle? Because when we genuinely live together, when we love one another, when we pray for one another, when we carry one another's burdens, we are displaying the gospel in the heavenly realms. The church proclaims this mystery, this good news to the heavenly realms through its unity together. And I want to take just a couple minutes to wrap up by encouraging us from this last verse and consider this call to proclaim Jesus. At first you're going to read this, you're going to say, wait, that, how, why, why does that fit in? How does that fit into this? But I want to look at this verse and end here. It says, <clears throat> Paul saying to the Ephesians, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, at the time of writing this, remember, Paul was in prison. He was potentially going to be killed, but Paul had a near and dear place in their hearts. He was kind of like a, a father figure, a pastor baby to some of them. He had planted this church there. They loved him. They cared for him. And Paul says, hey, don't lose heart in my situation, in my imprisonment, because this suffering is all for your glory, or in other words, your new status, or your new position in the kingdom, your entrance into God's family. In other words, Paul's main idea of the sentence is, if having the entire Gentile world be able to be a part of this beautiful church, and to have access to God, as it says in verse 12, and to be insiders in God's family. If all of that is possible, and all it took was for one life, my life, to be sacrificed for it, then that is totally okay with me. Don't be sad about this. I have enjoyed to suffer because of the amazing things that have happened because of it. It was a gift to me to suffer because of what's true for you now. It's a privilege for me to suffer because of what's true for you now. And you can't help but notice the gospel parallel, the gospel echoes of Jesus in this. One man sacrifices so many life he could have new life. Jesus lived a sacrificial life. He died a sacrificial death for the sins of the world, and he was raised to new life so that we could now, he could now impart new life to us. And Paul picks up his cues from Jesus and said, if I can suffer on this world so that many people can experience new life, I am totally all in for that. Now Paul is asking us to operate from the same gospel paradigm. He said, don't be sad that Jesus died. Rejoice because of what it means for you. Don't be sad that I have now suffered for you. Be glad and rejoice because of what it now means for you and your new life in the gospel. Now, 
church, could we with this charge to proclaim individually and proclaim corporately as a church not lose heart in the process because of what we see around us, but with a sense of hopefulness and gladness for the sake of the gospel in the same way that Paul did? Could we understand our place in this gospel timeline, that the gospel has come to us on its way to someone else, and realize that pursuing and proclaiming Jesus, yes, it might take some sacrifice, and there might be some suffering in the process, but if our suffering saves one or a few or dozens or maybe even generations of family that are coming after us, how could we not say that that is worth it for eternity? God has an eternal plan, a gospel timeline, and that is to unite all things to Christ, and God's plan moves forward when his people proclaim. Let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, we are thankful that you have included us. Um, God, for some of us who are here today who are maybe um, feeling overwhelmed in life and distracted, um, God, a a call um, into your kingdom may feel even extra. um, It just may feel like a lot. And God, I pray that you could help give us your perspective of knowing that... that, um, Living in your calling to be a people that proclaim uh, God is, is where abundant life is found. In, in giving up our lives, Jesus, as you say, we will actually find it. That, that is where abundant life is found. Jesus, would you um, just infect us with this, um, this, this paradigm, this um, self-sacrificing paradigm um, for the good, for your glory, for the glory of others? And God, could we live in this? Jesus, we pray. Um, that you could do a mighty work in this community, through this church, and we could see the gospel go forward to many, many people and many lives could be changed. And could you get glory from that? Could people get abundant life from that? God, uh, we are yours. Could we be a people who truly proclaim you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.